I went to a marvelous party. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. From the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show, the Internet's first live comedy variety show, with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. Actually, there's a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, we're going to no, no. is... take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through the dinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the Get out of my office. It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric. Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And tonight we will not be talking about press speculation that Lady Gaga's drop in album sales was caused by her refusal to take the advice of music executives. Mm. If entertainment industry execs had an infallible and magical touch, how do we explain the hundreds of flops they always bring to market every year? They we don't suck. Want, we don't want to talk about those either. <laughs> Except maybe you. You want to cough again. <laughs> cough some more. And while we certainly hope everyone is safe and warm and has more than enough electricity to listen to tonight's show, <laughs> we remain unimpressed with the news value of continuing reports that there is winter weather during winter. Always put the show first, Eric. That's also not being discussed. <laughs> and our guests, I want them warm and safe. <laughs> exactly. Also not being discussed tonight, the alleged bravery of megastars posting makeup-free photos of themselves after they've already <laughs> earned, saved, and invested millions from uh, the dividends so of their global celebrity. And while we are very sad about the recent deaths of several very prominent people, we pledge not to imply that we were friends with any of them or make the story of their death about us. We sincerely wish that more legitimate news outlets would do likewise. We're plenty legitimate. Anyway, <laughs> we will not be discussing whether or not Santa Claus is white. Let me say that again. Whether Santa or not Claus. Santa Claus is white. Oh, God, not her. And here's why we're not discussing it, because Santa Claus is not real. Unless you and your significant other are into some really weird role play around the holidays. And to be frank, we don't really want to talk about that either. I don't know. That could be interesting. Maybe we'll do a special after the first of the year. <laughs> no. And speaking of Santa, who is as real as we would like him to be, under no circumstances will we be discussing just what good little boys we have been this year and how worthy we are of all of Santa's favor. 
as we think that should be obvious to anyone who's listened into the show or kept up with us over the past year. We simply offer our humble thanks for your kindness and hospitality for welcoming our little dinner party show into your life. Little. Speak for yourself, Miss B. <laughs> As for everything else, it's still on the table on tonight's live cast of The Dinner Party Show. And tonight, here with a very special dinner party show provocation, it's Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. Well, it's that time of year again. And no, I don't mean the day I got off my fur-covered ass and earned my weight in cookies and candy canes. No, sorry, Bob. I mean, it's that time of year when rich or poor, young or old, saints and sinners, we all pause to ask ourselves that age-old question. Have I been nutty or nice this year? Sure, blame me, but I'm just a symptom, not the cause. I think it has more to do with the Northern Hemisphere weather pattern, but it comes down to this. At year's end, we all pause to reflect on how it's gone the previous 12 months. You may calculate it in dollars and cents, wins and losses, attaboys, hours log between the sheets, but at the end of the year, there's no avoiding inventory. Ho, ho, ho. So, if I may offer a bit of Santa's wisdom on what's worked for me over the years to keep the end of the year blues away and offered me more satisfaction than all the cookies and candy canes and bobtails I can stuff in my stocking, Try thinking about somebody other than yourselves, you selfish bastards. Oh, fucking oh. Be nice to the people who work at the stores and stop acting like a jerk because the lines are long and the crowds are huge. You're the dumb fuck who put everything off till the last minute because you were too lazy to be bothered or too cheap to pay retail. Let someone in in traffic. Try not snaking the other guy's parking place. And if someone snakes you, wave with all your fingers and wish them the best of the season. They'll feel like shit, and you'll feel better for not having been the jerk you were aching to be. Do things just to be nice for a change. The earth doesn't have to move, just the corners of your ungrateful mouths. Spend more time thinking about what you can give than what you can get. In the end, who can remember what they got for Christmas last year? But I bet you'll never forget every rotten thing you've said and done in the 364 days since. I know I won't. I'm keeping a list and checking it twice, but really, it's the stuff you put on your list that counts. So, it won't make up for the whole year, but why make it worse these final few days? Oh, ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas to all, and to all, good fucking luck! Oh, ho, ho, ho! <laughs> now um, that Santa is a crazy old white man. That is a crazy, crazy Santa. old white man. There's yes, a yes, Santa yes. I could believe. Although I, I think Morgan Freeman could pull that off. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think it would be much down here. Samuel Jackson. That Samuel, Samuel Jackson, Jackson Santa is black Santa. <laughs> Moving <laughs> off that topic. No. Listen, okay, we 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 got a big, 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 big show tonight. Patricia Cornwell. I mean, Patricia Cornwell. I mean. Unbelievable Facebook response to the announcement that we were pre-recording an interview with Patricia Cornwell this And an Wednesday. amazing interview. Amazing. Really wonderful. The best part was watching Christopher turn beet red when she expressed her great fondness for his work. I mean to tell you. It was really a great, it was a, it was a wonderful moment. Not since Eric Shaw Quinn teared up talking to Patricia Nell Warren, oh another God. Patricia and the author of The Front Runner, which right? was a book that very much affected Eric. So we have that. <laughs> that explains what happened to Eric. <laughs> 
<laughs> you haven't done much running. I think the book's all about the Olympics yeah, and running. Yeah, that wasn't the part that affected me. So we got a lot to talk about. But first things first. First things first. Our very own Beef Wellington, our vice president Tell in charge of- Tell people who Beef Wellington is. He's our vice president in charge of guest relations and hot tea, and he's also- um, Billy McIntyre is his real life name, and uh, he has a band called the Maybe Somedays, and they are doing, uh, it's not a Kickstarter campaign, but it's like that, to try and raise money to finish off their first album. And so we've posted, or Shay, if you would, post that link on the Facebook page if you've got a little... If Santa leaves you a little extra in your stocking and you've got a few dollars to spare, I don't think they're trying to raise too terribly much, but they are trying to put together... um, uh, their their first album and I guess the studio space and whatever they need to to get that accomplished. So there's uh, videos to meet them and hear some of their music and a place where you can make a contribution. So that'll be posted that'll, on right. on the Facebook fan page uh, for the dinner party show. It's our very own Beef Wellington. So it's not just some and you <laughs> some random band. You who's can see it on our Billy page. on our YouTube channel. He appears out of the side, sort of paranormal activity like <laughs> some of our clips. He is also often leading the guests into the studio as we film them and, and interview them backstage. He is not actually doing the interview. That is, that's Nick, uh, who won't be with us anymore right, after this tonight. Is Nick's we're sorry last to say. night. And Nick we're has a... had it with Eric, completely yeah. had it, and I, he's on his way out. You know, I, I try and be high maintenance, but some people can't face it. Nick has left to explore new opportunities that don't involve serving Eric tea every five minutes. Actually, that's been more Beef Wellington's job. That's true. And, and so, we have and we have a new Beef Wellington coming on, on board tonight. We do. Jack, I'm not sure what Jack's last name is. I think it's Meinke, he something like that. He doesn't have a last name. He's oh. like Cher. <laughs> just Jack. He's just Jack. I knew we were going to go into a Will yeah. and Grace reference if we didn't watch it. So, also, another guest on the show tonight, Dr. Joe Wenke, is here Absolutely. to talk about his book, Papal Bull. Papal Bull is actually a real thing. It's a Vatican thing. I Like a gift from the gods. His book is a very, uh, let's say, no-holds-barred take on the Catholic Church and the actual implications of their positions. But we asked him up front what he thinks of Pope Francis and whether or not Pope Francis will be an agent for change, and he will give his answer and later we have in the that. show. And then Patricia Cornwell. Patricia Cornwell. Did we mention Patricia Cornwell will Patricia be here? Patricia Cornwell is here. The queen of crime fiction does a lot of talking about Jack the Ripper because apparently she took some more grief this week or a dismissal came her way by way of the Tate Gallery in London which dis- uh, attempted to debunk her theory or just sort of blithely said that she had been discredited but she brought to our show some actual evidence that she has not been discredited to the extent that the Tate would like people to believe and she has actual documentation that proves the man she has fingered as uh, We the still don't know why the Tate has become invested in disproving Patricia's theory about this but but you never know. Well, yeah, absolutely. The book was published in 2002 but she is bringing out a revised edition. I think not for some time but she made an announcement recently or she gave a quote recently about some new evidence she will include yeah. in that book and it put it back in the news cycle and a lot yeah. of our party people asked about it. Yeah, so we New evidence. So all yeah. of that is discussed and plenty more. Also, her her new book, Dust. Yeah. Uh, certainly, we uh, got quite we, the latest from. Uh, it's it's something like the thirty sixth K Scarpetta book. <laughs> she puts them out like clockwork. The latest from K. Uh, unbelievable. She's amazing. Incredibly prolific. So. And a wonderful and generous guest. So it was it was a delight to have her here in the studio, and she'll be here with us along with Joe Wenke, um, with tonight's show. But for now, we have a report from our fairly imbalanced newsman, Breck Artery. Let's see what he has to say about the holidays. We take you to Breck Artery, live from the steps of the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. Breck? 
This is Breck Artery, live from the scene of an historic moment in our nation's history, the U.S. Capitol Building. Here, after working only about a third of the days, we pay them the $174,000 to work. The U.S. House of Representatives have set a record for doing less than any other Congress in the brief history of our great nation. Who knows how brief that history will be if we continue to fall for the chicanery of the scoundrels who pass themselves off at election time as something other than the self-serving con artists we keep sending to Washington, deceived by the promises they've made to us and never intended to keep. Will Rogers once asked if the opposite of progress is Congress. I suppose the answer today would have to be, it depends on which way you're headed. If it's to hell in a handbasket, then these habitues of the public grift are roaring right along. It's not that they worked so few days or passed so few bills or done so little when they bothered to show up at all that is the real crisis here. The real tragedy of this historic, if dubious, accomplishment is that the lack of progress on our behalf is intentional. The majority leadership in the House of Representatives has chosen to do nothing to help us during a time of war, during a time of staggering hardship and unemployment, during the rise of robber barons unprecedented in our history, during epic debt in the face of dwindling revenue sources. During it all, the leadership in the 113th Congress has chosen to do less than any other Congress in history to further their own political ends. It's not good for us. It's not good for the country. It's only good for their political careers. Or so they think, because that's only true if we keep falling for this con game. It's one thing to get elected saying that you believe in small government and cutting spending. It's another entirely not to do one single thing to accomplish either of those goals since taking your oath. Here's hoping that next fall, when the polls reopen, we the people remember what they promised to do the last time and what they didn't do when they had the chance. Because as bad as they are, we elected them. Until next year, this is Brett Gardery wishing everyone a better memory, good night, and good dinner. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. And now, it's time for the hors d'oeuvres. Have two. They're small. Okay, so first off, we have a little disclaimer oh, here. Oh, what is this the, crap? The views expressed by the host are not necessarily those of the dinner party, at least where it is far as Santa not being real. Santa is dead, Greg Wilkie. Get over it. I hear you're putting up a fuss on the page. I guess he wants to keep it a secret from his students that Santa is not real. Do you students, know is that what we're calling them? Greg Wilkie is an assistant principal. <laughs> <laughs> you inappropriate, <laughs> inappropriate man. I don't know why he's married to a lovely woman, Allison, who I met them both at the Vampire Lestat Ball. Yes, this story has become about me and my adventures. Everybody drink. I haven't been to the bathroom yet, but Christopher made the story about him. BuzzFeed just did a list of the best Christmas-themed horror movies that everyone should see. Aww. Yeah. Christmas-themed horror movies? <laughs> Jesus Christ, really? I was like, why am I getting that reaction out of oh, you on this? That sounds horrible. Mr. What? Fucking Christmas over here, Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> this fall, <laughs> Vince Vaughn and Eric Shaw Quinn and Mr. Mr. Fucking, fucking Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, I think that sounds, I'm, I'm ready for that. I've, I've already got the house ready for it anyway. Uh, let's talk about your goddamn Christmas village, since it's all we ever talk about it on our show okay. in November and December. I would like to ask for people's advice. I have oh, taken Lord. all of these photographs with my iPhone, but they are not migrating to my computer on my 
whatever on the 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 photo stream and i don't it's like selective like it picks some photos that it'll put mm-hmm. is there is there some way that you can tell welcome it to, to another episode to of eric shawquin falls apart over technology no, brought I to you just, by cnet i can't get it to do what i need it to do so i haven't gotten them posted so this is my long way of apologizing and saying it's not my fault I, I don't have pictures, more pictures. <laughs> I'm going to repeat this. The Christmas Village up yet. I did this wonderful photo essay with all of these processed photos of the of the whole five-day event. Processed of, yeah. photos? What does that mean? Like it processed like cheese? I photograph the, the, the tree as the lights go on it, and then as oh. the village gets unpacked and goes in and gets laid out in the snow, and then the lights and oh, then the so decorations. Oh, so the photos are of the village in process. Right, the it's photos the whole themselves series. weren't processed no, through a processor. No, no, that I don't think anybody, I don't even think my mother still takes photos to Do they still have photo processors? I, I thought it was your uh, sort of antiquated way of referring to filtering, which is very popular now, where you hit a filter and make everything sepia-toned or vaguely black yeah, and white. Yeah, that was or... fun for about 20 minutes, and now I'm off. Well, I would think a purist like you who works as hard on your Christmas village would not want it to be filtered. You would want the, the intricacy and detail to if shine. If I could get a star filter, I think that would be pretty amazing. Okay, that would be amazing. How much longer are we going to talk about your Christmas village? The, I haven't even finished yet. Okay, I won't actually ahead. stop decorating until, until I leave for Christmas, you know. Jesus, you have a problem. But you do. what a great problem to have. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Anyway, so that's so. If anybody has tips on causing my iPhone's photo stream to appear in its entirety on my computer, otherwise I'll have to, you know, post them from the iPhone, which I just think will be a pain in the. That will be a giant pain in the ass. Please leave right? your tips on our Facebook page, along with everything else related to the oh, dinner right. party show. Oh, right, we were doing show. something interesting. We were trying new things with yes, the, the actual page. We're doing a. Uh, we're uh, we're pinning the one post. If you want to talk, ask a question for Christopher or me, or talk directly to us. There's a pinned post that Shay will be monitoring on the page, and then everybody is invited to do their own posting for their own individual stuff, of yes. course, all the time, so that they're so that we have one central stream for the show, and then all of the ancillary. Uh, let me let me give the simpler version of that. If you want to say something directly to me and Eric during the show, post it in the thread that's pinned at the top of the page. Otherwise, use timeline posts, as you all have apparently a preference for doing, even though we would prefer that you all post in the single thread. I guess I made that as complicated as I you I was just going it. to say that sounded I injected more opinion his... and editorial uh, into that. Uh, um, but we love all our party people. Regis Harden Jr. apparently would like us to become an animated series. You know, we have a friend, Adam Robotel, who just finished directing his first movie, by the way. We're very happy for him. He's right, editing congratulations, it now. Adam. He has always wanted to set Eric's voice to an animated penguin. <laughs> Yes. A penguin? Yeah, I don't know why he picked that. But like not the penguin from Batman, but like a cute little sort of happy feet style penguin. <laughs> so they look pretty scared to me. And I know that would be your preference, but I he would just like a sort one. of penguin who is delivering Eric Shaw Quinn's usual rants about, I don't know, walking here, walking home, sleeping, being awake, watching television, putting the Christmas village together. Bitching about stuff. Getting waited on, Me not getting waited stuff, on. Coming out of the face of a penguin. Absolutely. So we will we will be more than happy to explore any and all possibilities related to the animation of the dinner party show. And happy birthday to David Green, who asked for a shout out oh, when I wished him a happy birthday. Cool. So there you go, David. Don't say I didn't get you anything for Christmas. Happy birthday. Or your David Green. <laughs> so, um, and Robert Hitlin. I have, uh, 
Okay, we can't just wish everyone a happy birthday. You have to be choosy. Do you remember Miss Barbara from Romper Room? Did they have that when you were a child? Yes, they did. Yeah, I'm not she that would, young. She would hold up the magic mirror and wish happy birthday to everybody out in her kingdom. Oh, really? They had a local sort of Romper Room style children's show in New Orleans called Popeye and Friends, which I believe was sponsored by Popeye's Chicken, which started in New Orleans. <laughs> right. And my friend who was... Because they didn't want to wait around until the last minute exactly. for the triple bypass surgery. Exactly. And my friend who was um, a difficult little girl, we shall say, arrived there as a seven-year-old, and they offered them all chicken, and she said, do you have anything besides chicken? <laughs> and they were like, no, it's Popeye and Friends, sponsored by Popeye's Chicken. Eat the chicken and Well, you think up. they'd have spinach. Popeye ate spinach. I don't think it was branded with the cartoon. It was really a sort of chicken, fried chicken vehicle, as much in the South is. <laughs> Hello, I'm the fried chicken. <laughs> okay. Speaking of the South. We are so baked. Speaking of the South, and listen, if you didn't want me to talk this much, you should not have given me red velvet cake before we went on the air. Um, the Cracker Barrel. Yeah, because I'm always trying to shut you up. That's why we do a talk radio show. <laughs> <laughs> what a bad plan that turned out Stop. to be. You're trying to throw me off my talking points by being funny again. Okay. So the, meanwhile. The Cracker Barrel. Was one of my favorite guilty pleasures in the South. They don't have them out here in California, I don't think. We would drive 45 minutes to Slidell, Louisiana to eat at one. Let me say, me and whoever I had taken hostage in my car that day would drive 45 minutes to Slidell to eat at one. They were notorious for firing gay people, which was a problem. And at 13, I or let's say 16 or 17, because I was driving, um, <laughs> I, I didn't, I wasn't really out yet. I knew it. I didn't think it was a cool thing to do. But they apparently, and I read this uh, recently, they now have a 45 out of 100 score on the Equality Index from the Human Rights Campaign. And so I, it was framed as the, 45 is like a vast improvement for the Cracker Barrel. And apparently the Olive Garden has 100%. Has the Olive 100. Garden, who, it is my understanding, and maybe this is one of those urban legends, actually sued for the right to fire gay people, now has 100%. So, mm. you know, go Olive Garden. Well, you know, I have to say what the article said is that these companies do what is good for business. And there was a time when being homophobic was good for business, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, especially with the Cracker Barrel, a deep south chain of home cooking Miley restaurants. Miley Cyrus with... is a fan of the Cracker Barrel. She gave I them a the big time. shout out. She was somewhere. She was going to some awards or something recently. And when she put her clothes on, she said she was going to uh, Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. She's going <laughs> to dash out to Cracker Barrel. It's her version of I'm going to Disneyland. Right? I'm going to Cracker Barrel, well, y'all. You know, no Nobody in L.A. eats anything at all, ever, because yeah. they're always getting ready to be on camera. So, yeah, I think it probably is like going to Disneyland. Even if it's... Well, I get to actually eat a car. But... <laughs> woo Absolutely. Apparently, we have a special thing happening next week on the show. We have a very special guest. Jordan Ampersand is actually going to be organizing our little Christmas special, and... Oh, who, who and, is and we use the term organizing in the loosest possible. I just had to fill out all sorts of stuff for permits, and so I think this is going to be better and than And we usual. had to get that extra writer for the insurance. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you about that uh, later. Yeah, but it's Jordan. What, what did you expect? Whatever. You put him in charge. Uh, yeah, and I also uh, I hear Fitzpatrick is back or something. There's some strange report in the show notes about what Jordan... Get, did this with, uh, really something strange to do with Jordan? So it didn't involve you, is what I. I just want to know how much grief I'm going to get I from am, you later. I, you know, like you wanted to do this thing with Jordan. I'm letting okay. you. I'm letting. And I. Now, one other note. Uh, we. This is your last shout out for uh, poll, for polling for yes. the the Forky Awards will be on the December 29th show and. Uh, 
We need your votes, so be sure and poll. The polls close tomorrow morning. And so let, let sure me and remind you where the survey is. It's on our Facebook page along with everything else, and it is an app on our page, which means it's one of the squares above where all the posts are found, and I think it says vote. Vote now. Vote now. And if you are on a mobile device, you need to be using the mobile app, the mobile version of this app, which we have also made available to you in a way that I don't immediately remember or really understand. There's some sort of link that maybe Shay can post that yeah. I think mobile people can click on that will take them. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are we are, we are going to welcome our first guest very soon. Dr. Joe Wenke will be up next, and then he will be followed by the amazing Patricia Cornwell, and then we will be back with you here on the Dinner Party Show. Eric Shaw Quinn, any final thoughts? Christopher Rice... There's dessert. There's Did I dessert mention there's in the dessert? Lobby. It's des- Festival of Desserts. Thanks for listening. Nothing brings on the suspense like a countdown to the end of the world. And with each new TV season, the stakes get higher and the thrills get deeper. This winter, forget Jack Bauer and his 24 hours. This time, you have only five seconds to save the world. Oh my God, is that a nuclear... Wait a minute, that dam doesn't look like... They don't have a minute. They don't even have half a minute. What they've got is barely enough time to wash their hands after a trip to the bathroom. But it's all they've got to save the world. This winter, it's Five Seconds, a show that's completely unworkable and jerry-rigged premise will force its writers to introduce 70 heroes in the first three episodes, none of whom will actually have enough time to save the world. And somewhere around episode five, the show will have run out of compelling concepts for Armageddon. Hey, those turkeys don't look like normal turkeys. Five seconds this fall on... Yeah, sorry. You're canceled. Oh, well, that's fitting. But that that turkey storyline? I smell spinoff. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good taste gone bad. Tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, where the soup is hot, 
but the heads are hotter. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome back to the Dinner Party Show, where we're joined by a special guest, a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Dr. Joe Wenke is the founder and publisher of TransUber, a publishing company with a focus on promoting LGBTQ rights, free thought, and equality for all people. His latest book is Papal Bull, an ex-Catholic calls out the Catholic Church. He joins us this evening via <laughs> Skype. Dr. Wenke, welcome to the Dinner well Party done. Show. Welcome to the dinner. Hey there. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So let's start off with this. Your book has a satirical tone to it. You call yourself, I believe, an observational satirist. Is that a correct term? That's what my agent calls me. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, yeah the book is a satire. It, you know, it's, it's actually a kind of memoir, in a sense, because it tells the story of what it was like for me to grow up Catholic, and the opening piece is a straight memoir. But what I then tried to do was to tell the story of how I went from the little boy in the white First Holy Communion suit on the back cover to the person I am today, you know, kind of a skeptic, free thinker, iconoclastic kind of a guy. And I thought the best way to do that really is to sort of call out all of the questions and issues that I have with the Catholic Church, but to do it satirically. Well, and the title of the book, while it sounds very satirical, is actually a real thing, a papal bull, if I pronounce yes, it correctly. Yes, you know, actually papal bull. Papal. A papal bull is an unintentionally ironic term <laughs> right? for a formal proclamation is by the Pope. Ironic. <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking, you know, uh, what is a great title for this? And, that, and that's really it. You know, these uh, infallible ex-cathedra pronouncements by the Pope that are supposed to communicate eternal truth, and it's really just, you know, some guy laying down morality on uh, all of us poor people. And that they call it bull right up front (laughs) is like, wow, really, you didn't? I wonder which came first. Did we start calling other stuff bull as a result of their calling stuff bull? Or I wonder if one influenced the other. It's just a happy coincidence. (laughs) uh, It certainly is for me. Redounded to me in the book. Yes, absolutely (laughs) works for you. So uh, let's start with how your latest book relates to the latest headlines about the Catholic Church. Obviously, everybody is talking about Pope Francis, and I guess we want to ask you, is this man destined to change the Catholic Church forever, and is he destined to change it into something anyone who listens to our show might actually like? The the short answer to that is no. Right. Uh, Quite frankly, (laughs) I think a lot of progressive Catholics are really looking for change, and, uh, you know, with Benedict, who was not known as God's Rottweiler because he headed up an office that was called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is sort of the orthodoxy office. He held that position before he became Pope. It used to be known as the Office of the Inquisition, by the way. They changed the name in the 60s. It's all about Uh, PR, babe. That's right. It's like Altria, you know, or (laughs) something like that. And so he he wasn't really a people person, and it appears that Francis has sort of a more outgoing and a a warmer approach, and he wants to be more collaborative. But I think the Catholic Church has painted itself into a corner when it comes to reform, because if you think you're the one true church and that you're communicating eternal truths, well, which of those eternal truths can be changed? You know, so there's very little wiggle room. And the other odd thing, quite frankly, is that he's come on very strong about the idea that the church cannot ordain women. So, you know, this would be one big change, right? Uh, No woman in 2,000 years has really held a position of authority in the Catholic Church. I mean, there are nuns, obviously, and uh, we had Mother Teresa, the great fundraiser, and, uh, you know, the, the horror of clinics that wouldn't give Ouch, uh, dying people uh, pain medicine. And Christopher Hitchens wrote a great little pamphlet on that called The Missionary Position. 
See, it just keeps giving this but religion. But if you, if you say, hey, to have any authority, you can't run a parish, you can't be a bishop if you're not a priest. What does Pope Francis say about that? He says, don't look at me, God didn't give us this authority. So, you know, again, I know it's the one true church, but it's, if you look at it as a human institution run by guys saying, sorry, ladies, we can't make you priests, don't look at us, it's the creator of the universe who won't let us do this, that's kind of disingenuous. And he also actually backed a report censuring uh, American nuns. Uh, there's uh, the, the number one group that um, that basically represents American nuns is called the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. And one of the things that they were lobbying for was the ordination of women and also to change the, the church's view on homosexuality and on transgender people. And they've been censured for that. And a, a guy has been sort of put in charge of them, a bishop, has to actually sort of oversee them and even approve speakers at their conferences. Right. So... He's made it pretty clear he's not going to change on that. Nothing. It's kind of the, the the thing that you touch on that I'm really is like, so what kind of jerk is God? Right, right. You know, well, like, this is my whole point. This is why uh, uh, the opening chapter after the little introduction of my book is called, okay, you're dead, now what? And there's this whole <laughs> idea, you know, that when you die, you're going to be judged. Like some people live their whole lives thinking they're going to get into trouble when they're dead. My message to them is, hello, you can't get into any more trouble. You're dead. Let me read a quote from one of your articles, Dr. Wenke, because it, it really dovetails with something Eric Shaw Quinn always says on this show, which is Eric refuses to believe in a God who hates most of what he created. Created the world and then and the universe and then hates almost all but of it. But here's another take that you had, Joe, which is usually hate speech is pretty direct. A good example is the web address for the Westboro Baptist Church. It's godhatesfags.com. No need to decode that message. Right, it's pretty clear. If you go to the website, you'll find links to God Hates Islam, God Hates the Media, and God hates the world, it would be a breath of fresh air if I went to the site one day and found a link to the web address God hates himself for creating the world. <laughs> but I'm not expecting that anytime soon. You know, I, exactly. But another idea I want to talk about, too, since you brought up Americans and the, and the difference between the Vatican and, and, and the, the nuns doing work here in America, is how important is it for Americans who are not members of the Catholic Church to even pay attention to the Catholic Church, is it okay or is it advisable for us to say, "Well, the Vatican can do what the Vatican's going to do"? I'm not really, I'm not a member of that church, so I really shouldn't be concerned. Well, the reason I think we should pay attention to them is that a lot of people follow them. There's like a billion people. It's just the same reason for paying attention no, to the really. religious right. So, you know, what are these people saying that people are still following? People who consider themselves to be progressives. There are politically lots of politically liberal Catholics. Now, it's true, you know, some of their beliefs may not really be in sync with Orthodox Catholicism, but they still follow the Church in many ways. And so, you know, what's the, the Church's position on some key issues? I just went through the whole issue of their position on women's ordination. And, you know, really, if you want to dig down into why that is, they really do go back to the old Adam and Eve story. It's woman brought sin into the world, and so the woman's role oh is God. really maternal. She's supposed to be a mother. Childbirth is really painful. There's suffering. God invents death because he's so angry that they eat this piece of fruit. But the, the other thing is that women, really you know, made, made, made from the rib of Adam is subordinate to men. Mm -hmm. So these ideas continue, and people still believe them. What is their view 
of homosexuality. Well, they actually believe that if you are homosexual, you are what they call disordered. They don't mean that you're a sloppy dresser, you know, or that you're, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you don't have your act together. They, don't they understand mean the that you're living system. in a state of being that is contrary to natural law. And right. again, if you dig down, what are they talking about? Well, what they're talking about is the idea that the purpose of sex is procreation. This is another idea that most people just accept without questioning. All I have to say is, excuse me, how many times of all the times that anybody has sex, are they actually trying to make a baby? Right, right. right. I mean, like, I come from a family with, you know, 11 children. My parents were married for over 40 years. (laughs) How many times were they trying to make... I'm sure after the, the third or the fourth, they were saying... Oh my God! I hope it doesn't happen again. But you know, they didn't believe in birth control, and they probably that's another didn't thing have, that the church is adamant about. And in fact, they actually think if you have sex and it's not procreative, that it's a disordered act. So these are ideas that I, I think that right. we need to be aware of at least, and we need to understand that you know the Catholic Church does not see a homosexual orientation as being authentic as being, you know, as as great as mm-hmm. being heterosexual. Well, we're going to take a short break here, and then we'll be back with Dr. Joe Wenke discussing his new book, Papal Bull, and you have some other books we want to talk about, too. And his too. very refreshing views on an old topic. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute. A new live cast of The Dinner Party Show begins airing every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific at thedinnerpartyshow.com or through our free mobile app. And you can subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes, where all of our shows are available anytime you want to listen. Enjoy, and thanks for listening to The Dinner Party Show. Now it's time for Eric's rash pronouncement of the week. Everybody who's anybody has a concussion. This has been Eric's rash pronouncement of the week. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And we are talking via Skype with Dr. Joe Wenke about his new book, Papal Bull, An Ex-Catholic Calls Out the Catholic Church. So I know you're probably sick of talking about it, Joe. Like Pope Francis, it's one of those news stories everybody wants to talk about in relation to the church. But You did write a book on Catholicism, so it's bound to come up. The sex abuse scandal. Yes, it is. Um, well, I just did two books on religion, and I'm totally sick of it. So, so <laughs> this, this is it for me. I've, I've gotten it out of my system. I made book, fun of the race Bible. Cars. I made fun of the Catholic Church. I'm done, okay? Yeah. We want to talk some about what you think Pope Francis could do to address the scandal, but I, one of the things that intrigues me, which we've addressed some on the show, is the radical right-wing talking points about about the sex abuse scandals. One, that it's not a pedophilia scandal, that this was about gay men infiltrating the church and abusing right, teenage right, right. boys, that it was the result of a larger liberalization. I mean, these are really the points that um, conservative commentator Bill Donahue gets out and makes on CNN all the time. Uh, what's your response to those sort of narrative? Uh, my response things. to Bill is that the Catholic Church has given homosexuality a bad name. 
<laughs> That's what I have to say to him. Wow. Uh, and the reason, well, what they, they've done is to perpetuate the bigoted stereotype that homosexuals are more prone to be pedophiles or hebophiles, which is the word that you use for somebody who's attracted to adolescents who, you know, are under 18, that, you know, through this scandal. And, you know, in fact, and a lot of people don't understand this. They don't understand and why would they that kind of sexual behavior where somebody's primarily attracted to a child or an adolescent. And if you actually read the psychological literature on it, clinical psychologists view most people who behave that way as not having an adult sexual orientation, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. Hmm. So that's one point there. The second point is it's pretty weird to be pointing fingers at gay people when there's an epidemic of men raping women. Right. And I don't care what statistics you look at, the numbers are horrifying. The, the Centers for Disease Control, and you can Google this and download the report, the statistics are not, actually not as bad as, as some of those that have been done by other organizations globally. But listen to this. The CDC says if you're a woman, you have a one in five chance of being raped Jesus. at some point in your life. And 42% of women are raped before the age of 18. Mm. That's an awful lot of guys raping women. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about sexual orientation, what's their sexual orientation? That would be the, the next thing I would say. The other thing, too, and I think there's a lot of confusion, and look, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but I don't believe that the fact that priests are supposed to be celibate is what's producing this behavior. And this is uh, another aspect of But that's solution. something that people on the left side of the debate often say, right? That it's the celibacy uh, they say that it. produces... I, I don't buy it, okay? Yeah, right. Like, if you can't fuck, wouldn't you uh, go look for another adult? Why right. would you say, okay, you know, I haven't had sex in 15 years. I'm going to go look for a kid. It doesn't make sense to me at all. I think it's that people with that issue were, some, for some reason, drawn to the Catholic Church as a haven. Yes, they'd have mm. access to children, right? Mm-hmm. But I think they were also believing that somehow they'd be protected by the institution. Right. Joe, let me ask you, as we're, as we're discussing this, it's always presented as though it's just, and maybe it is, that it's just the priests molesting boys. But no. is it a similar percentage to the, to, to the regular population? Like, are the priests molesting girls as well? And is it a higher percentage or an equivalent percentage? Or you, Do you know what I mean? Look, I don't think we have the full story on this, but certainly Obviously. some priests molested boys and girls. I, uh, one of the chapters in Papal Bull, I talk about the priests that I knew who taught me in high school who were child molesters. My religion teacher, who was also, hello, the guidance counselor, That's molested nice. boys and girls. And uh, the art, this was in Philadelphia. The archdiocese knew about it for decades. And the cardinal just let the guy stay in his position. And then this other guy, Monsignor Lynn, would file a report and say, you know, we think that he's okay. Or they would move them to other positions, and then they would prey on kids in the other area. That guy, Lynn, is one of the few priests who's been prosecuted and was actually convicted, and he's in jail now. He got three to six years, uh, and amazingly, or not so amazingly, he and his attorneys are appealing the sentence, Mm. saying that the law that was in place at the time only covered parents, guardians, and supervisors, and it doesn't cover him because he wasn't a supervisor of children. He was a supervisor of the supervisors of children. 
Golly. Kind of the opposite of the buck stops here. So meaning if you're higher up in, in the hierarchy, you have no responsibility right. for allowing and it's that uh, sort of know, child rapists to continue. That, and that, it's that kind of systemic issue within the whole structure that that seems to be the the sunlight being the best disinfectant i'm with you Mm -hmm. that the more that they reveal the more that we can get this out there and get it cleared up just in general because the problem is i think it seems to me from the outside and from my limited knowledge more akin to the fact that that the church has covered it up than it is the mm-hmm. actual molesters. That seems to me to be the worst problem. The cover-up is always the problem, but you know what? Isn't that what bureaucracies always do? Yes. Uh, and yeah. they don't learn. I mean, you can talk about Watergate. You can talk about all sorts of scandals of different types, whether they're political or this sex scandal, and the institutions always try to cover it up. And it's the uh, it's the epitome of hypocrisy. Well, in this case, too, it's the cover up allowed the abuse to continue. Isn't that correct, Joe, that the cover up would involve a priest that they knew to be a predator being moved either to another parish or in some cases out of the country where they would continue to abuse children? Yes, they'd either let the priest stay in his job or they would reassign priests. That's the systemic issue that seems to me at the, the heart of this investigation. What's preventing this from moving forward? What what stops us from being able to get these records revealed, to 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 bring this into to full light and to a more complete investigation, they've been asked for this information in June, in July rather, uh, by the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child, of which the Vatican, which is a country, is a member nation. They were supposed to respond by November first. They didn't, and they're supposed to give a presentation uh, in January. So golden opportunity for Pope Francis, right. the reformer, to do something about this. But here's the other thing. I don't hear anybody say anything about this. This guy's been a part of the church for, for 40, 50 years, right? What did he do while all of this was happening? Mm-hmm. What was his role? He was a cardinal. He was in charge. What, you know, Was he a leader in exposing any of this? I haven't heard a word about that. Yeah. He was part of the hierarchy when all of this stuff was going on for decades. Yeah. Well, we could do a whole show on the sex abuse God scandals knows. alone, and, and people should be, and they are. Uh, but yeah. I want to turn it back to you for a second, because you wrote something interesting. You write that there are a large number of recovering Catholics, such as yourself, who walk around in a state of cosmic rehab. Talk to us about what you mean by cosmic rehab. Great term. I love that term. Yeah, well, you know, how did I first start questioning? It's I hit puberty. You are taught that even having a sexual thought that you enjoy is a serious sin. It's a mortal sin. So you're hitting puberty, you have all of your sexual attractions, and you're feeling like whatever you do is wrong, uh, you're, you're guilty, you're a sinful person. And that cast of mind sort of colors how you look at everything that you do in your entire life. So I make the point that, look, even though I've rejected all of this stuff, it took me a long time, and I find that I still sort of look at things in a kind of analytical moral way because of this upbringing in the Catholic Church. And there are some good aspects to it and bad aspects to it. Like You still are sort of very influenced, I think as everybody is, by the way they were brought up. You know, if you were brought up in a Mormon household or a religious rite or, you know, a born-again Christian, or if you were brought up in a more secular household, it sort of affects the way you are for your entire life. You can never really get beyond that. So, you know, if you're an ex- Catholic, you are sort of in you know, perpetual rehab, trying to sort of reclaim 
your secular self. Well, and so what direction has the rehab led you personally? Has it led you in the direction of another spiritual theistic belief system, or has it led you in the direction of atheism? Yeah, I consider myself to be a non-practicing atheist. You know, I'd mm. rather play than practice, like Buddy Rich used to say. But, you know, <laughs> why should you believe anything? Why, why not base your epistemology, how you figure out what is true or not, how, how you acquire knowledge on science, on reason and on examining your own experience, isn't that what makes sense? Okay, uh, sure. if I'm wrong and there, you know, there's something once I'm dead, fine, I'll deal with it then. Uh, I'm used to being wrong. I have two ex-wives who tell me that I've been, you know, wrong for for a million years. I have no nothing invested in being right. I'm just interested in what's true, what's real. Absolutely. Well, it wouldn't be the dinner party show and it wouldn't be the holidays if we weren't going after the Catholic Church in some way, <laughs> which we do often on this show. <laughs> Dr. Wanky, well, thank you very much it. for joining us. The new book Good is called book. Yes. Papal Bull, and it's currently available on our website through our store, and it should be in the mainframe on the page if you're and listening to us live. The other book that sounds like such a riot to me is uh, You've Got to Be Kidding. Is that right? Yes, You've Got to Be Kidding, a radical satire of the the Bible in which I, uh, I I go after the Bible. And then I, I just want to add one other thing. I'm going to start a new project because I don't really think you can persuade people to disagree with you. The new project's called The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. And it's an ironic commentary on the old hate speech phrase, the homosexual agenda. What really strikes me about when people use that phrase, what they're appalled by is the idea that LGBTQ people want to be viewed as regular people just like everybody else. And I'm saying, yeah, that's exactly it. Right. It's going to be initially a series of YouTube videos with its own channel, and then I'm going to turn it into a book next year. If you go to joewanky.org or TransUber, my agent site, which is BookTrib, or just go to the YouTube channel, you'll, you'll find all of these Excellent. great conversations with all of these amazing people. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Joe. Dr. Joe Wanky, buy his book, Papal Thanks, Bull, at thedinnerpartyshow.com, and we'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Yes, more soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks for having me on the show. The Dinner Party Show presents live from Poison Creek with Joe Nail Sams. Thank you. Welcome back to Live from Poison Creek. Live from Poison Creek Mall. As you may know, after a year of focusing on relationship building with my dinner party show radio advice column, Homemade Relationship Advice with Jonelle Sams, Christopher and Eric have graciously invited me to extra help-ins here at the dinner party show. So I am delighted to say Live from Poison Creek will be a more regular feature on the dinner party show. I will, of course, still be here with relationship advice should you need it. And, of course, Merle, my husband of 23 blissful years, says he will continue his own personal men's-only relationship outreach, offering up his all-male relationship solutions. Merle does not share his techniques with me, but whatever it is he does, all I know is that it's kept him happy, easy to get along with, and an ideal partner all these years. In return for two or three nights a week and a couple of weekends a month, I get back a good solid husband and provider who is always there for me with a kind word and an understanding ear, as well as hair, fashion, and home decorating tips. Unless, of course, he's away with his friend 
Olsen Lee Pew antiquing or on a Broadway junket or on one of his alleged fishing trips, though he has never brought home a single fish in all these years. And just between us, I'd pay money for a video of Merle trying to hold on to a live fish for more than five seconds. Anyhow, if you contacted Merle online through one of the many men's only social media outlets to which he subscribes, believe me when I say that many is the time that Merle has come rushing in home from work and buzzed past me without so much as a word. He is so anxious to get in his office and get on that computer and check in with the many, many men with whom he is in daily contact. He is devoted to all you men out there. Take my word for it. He will bend over backwards to make sure you are as happy in your personal lives as he is in his. So Merle and me and the Dinner Party Show are still here for you 100% on the relationship front. My email is still jonelle at thedinnerpartyshow.com if you need my help. And all you men who are too shy to talk to me, you already seem to know how to get in touch with Merle, so I'll leave you to it. But rest assured, Merle is there for you in more ways than I'm sure I can imagine. Meanwhile, Christmas, right? Despite all those evil anti-Christmas types I keep hearing about out there, we are winning the war on Christmas. I have to admit that there is no sign of war here in Poison Creek or pretty much anywhere I've ever been, but I'm sure the news media would not steer me wrong on such an important and timely topic. So, if you are on the front lines of the war on Christmas, it would be great if you would let us know where you are so we can send you hand-knitted holiday sweaters, homemade holiday treats, and of course, Christmas decorations to hang on your Christmas tree just like they did in the Bible. We support you in your valiant fight against those who seek, little by little, to take Christmas away from us all. We here in Poison Creek wish all of you happy holidays. Thanks for fighting the good fight. Okay, so, coming up, the smell of borax and the tinkle of bell jars are in the air. It's my favorite things. Am I getting a car? Why does everyone always ask that? No, but we will take a look at the latest in antioxidant dry taxidermy preservatives, a beautiful line of granite ware canning blanchers with a selection of sizes to fit the most ambitious canner or the smallest artisanal conserve project. And another favorite feature of mine, find out how many canning supplies are versatile enough to use in your taxidermy shed to stuff an armadillo and then reuse right back in your kitchen to help you put up the season's preserves. All this and Santa reading some of his mail. The hell you say? When we come back to live from Poison Creek. This has been Live from Poison Creek with Joe Nail Sams. They don't call them bell jars for nothing. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Sacred Cows Roasted Daily. And now The Dinner Party Show presents your local news brought to you by The Truth. 
Good evening, I'm John Stencil, and there's a sore on my right knee I can't stop touching. I'm Chad Pastry, and my model train project in the basement will never be done because it's just a cover for my addiction to internet porn. A child who hates her parents ran away from home tonight, and her community is pretending like they miss her. Seen here in a series of photographs suggesting she was a huge pain in the ass to all who knew her, neighbors are dancing around the fact that she developed an increasingly rebellious personality the more she grew up and realized her parents were in a loveless marriage defined by a crushing sense of obligation. The child, who is actually 17 and has a pattern of making better relationship choices than her own mother, is currently well on her way to live with an eccentric aunt who has a farm in upstate New York and doesn't talk to the rest of the family because they hate her shitty artwork. But let's pretend like the girl was horribly murdered because that's a lot more fun for our viewers. Chat? Thanks, John. Statistics have been released once again confirming that on a holiday where large numbers of people travel to visit family, large numbers of people also use our nation's airports. People who work at our nation's airports acted like this was a problem. Airlines also acted like this was a problem, even though they are technically in the business of flying people from one destination to another. But here's a shot of a Greyhound bus to remind you how bad it could be if all the people who work at airports and the airlines weren't paid to bitch all the time. John? Our weather girl, Poppy Vancock, struts around the studio like she thinks she's a real journalist and is a constant reminder to us all that local TV news is built on a boulevard of broken dreams. Here she is with another report that was done for her by the National Weather Service. Poppy? Good evening, everyone. I'm Poppy Vancock, and John Stencil's voice isn't normally that low. He just drops it during broadcast, so you folks at home will think he has a real set of low hangers. The sky is still where it normally is, and there continue to be clouds in it. These clouds will blot out many of the stars, as will the light pollution that's caused by a lot of factors relating to the environment that I could not care less about. Guys, I'm pregnant. I mean, I've been ignoring the signs for weeks, and I don't even know if that guy from the Irish bar still lives here, but there's no way I'm going to him for help. Anyway, if you go outside, check that it's cold first, and if it's cold, get a jacket. If it's not cold, take the jacket off if you've already put it on. It's your body. Do what you want with it. Boy, I'm gonna have to say that a bunch at family dinner this weekend. Anyway, I'm Poppy Vancock, and if I go missing for a while, they'll probably slot that Vanessa girl in my place because our producer loves the Latinas. Arriba! Thanks, Poppy. I hope it's a boy and a girl and a big fat check to stay quiet about them both. And in other news, here's another report from our backlog of sanctimonious moralizing about Black Friday sales. A report that will give you the comfortable illusion that the only Americans who fall prey to crass consumerism are the ones who line up outside stores on Thanksgiving Eve. As if whatever latest hipster bullshit health food craze isn't just another excuse to spend money on something meaningless that temporarily anesthetizes your uncomfortable and persistent sense of self-loathing. Chet? 
Thanks, John. John's first wife self-published an e-book about their horrible marriage, and I just sent a copy to the iPad of everyone who works here. John? Thanks, Chet. Chet's wife has the thousand-yard stare of a war veteran, and it eventually lands on my crotch whenever we run into each other at the holiday party. Chet? Thanks, John. Ever wonder what became of John's house pets now that he's divorced again? So do most of his neighbors. They call me about it at least once a week. Tune in tomorrow for my special report. John? And if it goes the way of your special report on unionizing strippers you were talked into filing by that prostitute you're stupping, no one will get to see it either. I'm John Stencil, and I finally stopped touching that sore. And I'm Jet Pastry, and yes, that's my real name, and yes, I barely made it through high school. You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Let's dish. Start writing and don't take no for an answer. That's the advice our next guest has for aspiring writers and with over 26 New York Times bestsellers and 100 million copies of her book sold in over 36 languages. It is advice any young writer would do well to heed. Or old ones. Exactly, (laughs) all of us. Patricia Cornwell sold her first novel post-mortem while working as a computer analyst at the office of the chief medical examiner in Virginia. At her first book signing, I love the story, held during one of her lunch breaks, she didn't sell a single copy and fielded exactly one question. An elderly woman asked her where she could find the cookbooks. However, (laughs) post-mortem went on to win just about every prestigious award a crime novel can receive in the world, and today its its author is arguably one of the most influential and successful novelists in this country, if not the world at large. Her case for Arpetta novels have single-handedly invented the genre of forensic science-driven mysteries and introduced one of the most compelling and sophisticated female crime solvers in the history of American fiction. Her latest novel featuring case Scarpetta is called Dust, and it was released just this past month. Patricia Cornwell, welcome to the Dinner Party Show. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. I have. I love it. You guys have your own salon for artists. Nobody else does. That's it. Well, we wanted to be the first. You got to be the first at so many other things. We wanted to try and be first at something. Well, it really brings back an era that's tragically lost. Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, and these people all knew each other. Right. And, and they did have their salons because they, they talked, they fought, they got drunk together, whatever you know. But, you know, these days... I'm often asked, like, who do you know? And it's like, I don't really know hardly any authors or... You know, yeah. in Hollywood, you can know more people because things are collaborative, but or supposedly, right? But yeah. it's as it's, isolated so as this anywhere. Is, this, is, this is a great idea. One of the things we this. talked about when we were putting this together was part of the reason the Algonquin Roundtable was famous was because of who else was sitting at the table with them. They were a group of writers who wrote about each other and as a result became noted writers of the era. But yeah, I think the idea of a salon is. Yeah, a couple years ago, I was I, I met um, Pat Conroy at a mm. at a just a, oh. a cocktail party, and we were talking about the same thing mm-hmm. that we were joking that we were going to start a salon, you know, in Charleston where where he was at that time, and just because 
we don't get together very often and compare notes with each other. Like I, when I was reading, you know, Heaven's, Heaven's Rise, I wanted to ask you about your research, Chris. Mm-hmm. Like how much time did you spend? Did you actually go into Louisiana? Because it certainly yeah. feels like you were there. Oh, yeah, totally. And yeah. scary stuff. Is yeah. Patricia Cornwell asking me a question? I'm, I'm going to fanboy out. How cool is that? Christopher's <laughs> like, about I was, to I wanted to, I to ask you what you did because I, I was really impressed because I've spent some time down there right, too. Right, right, yeah. And that, that whole place is quite a character. It and, is a character. And it's and a scary. different character post-Katrina, which was really what my research was about because I lived there for 15 years, but I moved away before the storm. Oh, see, I didn't know that. Yeah, and going back and finding out which neighborhoods had come back first and expanded more than, you know, greater than they had been before the storm because everybody was concentrated there and nowhere else in the wake of the storm. There were things like that that I learned and I just getting in a boat and going places. I mean, I wanted to ask you about your research. You're sort of the queen of research, but a lot of it seems location-driven. Yeah, you but need I want to, to learn there. more about putting more horror. I like the horror. Do thing you, you really? Do. Oh, shoot, yeah. Everybody spies that stuff. They love it. <laughs> you know, the supernatural. And, the, and, um, and, you know, one thing you hit on in your book that is such an amazing psychological truth is that we all have a terrible fear of doing something awful. Right. And so the idea that someone would show you a video – of you committing a crime that you didn't oh, know you committed. Right. I mean, I, I, I was thinking... I, horrifying. It, yeah. I said, this would be... I'd rather be dead. Yeah. And yeah. so you really... You pick something that was scary in a way that goes right to your soul. Yeah. Unless you're a really bad person who likes to do things. Unless you're a complete psychopath. But yeah, I think all fears really come down to a loss of control, right? Or a loss of the illusion of control that we have in some situations. I think the reason a lot of people have trouble getting on planes is because it really drives home their powerlessness in the face of of natural elements and scientific forces and things that are larger than us. So and the I- complete inability well, and to fly a plane. I know, right? Like, I can't no fly idea. a plane. <laughs> you may. You, you know can how to fly a helicopter. No, I, I can fly a helicopter. I, I don't know how to fly a plane. Yeah. And I say, unless you've got a headwind that's so strong that it's it needs to hover, I could help you there. But if it can't <laughs> hover, I can't do anything. But, and by the way, you did a good job just uh, describing the, de- the disgusting odors of decomposition. I want to give you credit for that oh, also good, in your, good. your new book. So. Good. Thank you. Yes, Thank it was you. Good not, job, Christopher. Well, I learned from reading yours on that front. <laughs> were you inspired? Like, were you inspired to write from the perspective because of the job in Virginia? I mean, initially, well, see, that's the thing that most people—they don't. It's a weird story. I I always wanted to be a writer, and in fact, that's all I did as a little kid was write and draw pictures and put little books together. Not a surprise, uh, you know. And, and then in college, I decided I really wasn't good at anything else, and that was pretty true. So, well, maybe you should just be a writer because that's what you—you you seem to know how to do that. Okay. So I got a job in journalism first. They gave me the police beat, and that's what got me interested in crime. And then I then I wrote my first book was a biography, which sounds odd, but of Billy Graham's wife, mm-hmm. a wonderful person who was a good friend of mine, had nothing to do with re- religion. She was just this amazing woman. Mm-hmm. Huh. Then when I decided to write books about crime, I needed to do research, and I always thought. What, where do they take the body? What do they do with it? Because mm. I'd get to a crime scene as a journalist and the body's whisked away. So I went to work in a medical examiner's office to do research. Oh. And I thought I'd be such a little whiz kid, you know, give me a few months in here and then I'll write my first crime novel. Right, and, right. Well, three rejected crime novels and six years later, <laughs> I finally wrote Postmortem. And that made the rounds and was rejected by every major house in New York City. 
Um, so I was taking Amtrak looking for a job because my, I thought I don't want to spend the rest of my life working in a morgue. Mm-hmm. You know, six years of my cinder block, yeah. mm-hmm. windowless room. Um, and then Scribner's took it on postmortem on by literally a thread. We really? think we might take it. Then yes, we'll take it. And six thousand first printing I was paid six thousand dollars. Wow. And it. You know, I didn't. I never ever imagined that I would do anything that would hit a hit a bestseller list. Wow! So, did you have a fallback plan if it didn't work? Was there something else you really sort of were passionate about? No. Right. <laughs> I was just going to jump off a bridge eventually. I guess. <laughs> you know, I just said I don't have. I didn't. You know, I, I really didn't want to go back to journalism. Right. When I, I'd been around the real crimes, you right. know, the, 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 the the families, the dead bodies, and. That developed such a sensitivity in me that I didn't think I could ever report on these things on the other side where you don't care if you hurt mm. somebody's feelings or dis- distress them by putting details in right. the media that might devastate them all over again. It really changed who I am mm. to see this all for real. So the minute I'd finished postmortem, I'd already started Body of Evidence. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, I said, I'm, I'm just going to keep giving this a try. You know, maybe... Maybe someday I'll, I'll make it enough that I can afford to do this for a living. You Just never know. Just keep writing. Yeah, right. So. Well, well, the saying, I think we talk about it all the time on the show because they say it a lot to young actors when they come out to L.A. If you can be happy doing anything else, go do that because this is really, really hard. And a lot of them answer, no, I'm not going to be happy doing anything else. I've In got to case, give this my all. to do this. And I'll deal with the fallout when it's time to deal with the fallout, you know? Well, I, but I did work, you know, I mean, my, I had a full-time job at the medical examiner's office. I learned how to become a computer programmer right and i i managed their statewide computers in their database and did all their statistical analysis and so i if worse came to worse i was just going to be a, a, a low-paid computer yeah. state right. but you employee. took the job to research the topic rather than the other way around well, yeah, that's see, really I mean, interesting but, to me I you didn't know i got my that. first book contract when i was only 23 years old you know with for, with wow. harper and Rowe for the ruth book so i thought that that would segue into anything well no, it certainly didn't. Yeah. My agent dropped that. me after that. And nobody was interested in anything mm-hmm. else I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all know how hard it is. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, something that I read was that early on, the rejections for your first books had to do specifically with the fact that they took place in a morgue, or so much of them did. That, yeah. that and ultimately, the genre that you ended up inventing was lost on people in the very beginning. Oh, as if they said nobody wants to read about morgues or laboratories. Right. And certainly not a woman who works in such a place. A woman. And that really? was really Were they that yes. pointed about the woman part? Well, the this one this one bookseller in Richmond, um, who was nice enough to have a book signing for me. This is a you mentioned it earlier. It's a very funny story. <clears throat> he 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 had me come down to his store and I said, "Are you going to put books in the window?" And he says, "I I don't I can't afford to order, you know, enough books to put I can't afford really to put books in the window or whatever." <laughs> so I gave him a case, my only case that I got free to put in the window. I gave him wow. a case of books, which now each one of those is worth over two thousand dollars a piece. <laughs> rare <laughs> first editions, but but so but he said, you know, your book, the, it disturbed me so much that Scarpetta is a woman that I went through your book and I changed all the pronouns to he and him to see if I could if this was more palatable to me. And he said, but that just didn't work very well. <laughs> and I. And I said, well, why does it well, bother you? Done it. I said, but why does it bother you so much that Scarpetta, that a chief medical examiner would be a woman? He says, well, I just don't think women should be seeing things like this. And I said, <sighs> but why wouldn't they? They're usually the victims of it. Right. 
Absolutely. And, and now, of course, the field is just the forensic field is just crowded with women. Right. Absolutely. There are more women medical examiners and forensic scientists than men. Absolutely. And that certainly wasn't true. In 1990. I wonder if you might have had something I to do so. with I think so. And we'll talk some more about that in a minute when we're back with Patricia Cornwell here on The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Derek Shaw Quinn. Once a year, sir. That's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every December 25th. But an undigested bit of beef or an underdone potato. And it was uncertain if he'd ever see another Christmas morning. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. I'm the ghost of Christmas Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And welcome back to the Dinner Party Show. She's the author of over 26 New York Times bestsellers, many of them featuring her beloved heroine, Kay Scarpetta. The latest dust hit shelves just this past month. Patricia Cornwell, welcome to the Dinner Party Show. I'm again. having a blast being here. Absolutely. So let's talk about dust. Which is, okay, what number is this in the series? It's now? 21. Oh, God. The rest so of jealous. us are so behind. But, <laughs> no, but it's so important. People also know that you don't have to read any of the other ones to read Dust. In fact, I think Dust, more than any of the Scarpetta novels, it, it encapsulates the entire universe of not only Scarpetta but her ensemble so that you will really know who and what these people are and what they come from. Because that's, that's a daunting thing with the series if you have the same character. Right. It people, can feel like people you have go, to go, my God, I don't want to read this because I, I don't have time to read the first 20 books. And it, you don't have to do that. That, so. that is good for them to know. But I, as somebody who re- has read a lot of the books, I'm going to get a little <laughs> fanboy for a moment. You made some stylistic changes about midway through the series that I thought were really fascinating. You began writing them in the present tense, which is one of those things that I don't see a lot of authors do very often. And I don't see a lot of people talking about it when they do. What, what brought that about? Was it about your engagement with the material? I want to have such an immediacy for yes. the reader. And I've always said that the best writing is like a pane of glass. It, you, it takes you into another world, but you're not aware of the journey. It's not, it doesn't draw attention to itself. Um, and we all Absolutely. have read self-conscious writing, which to me is, uh, it's an obstruction. I can't, I, I'm not, I'm not getting the story or even seeing anything because I'm seeing words. I don't want to see the words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your, your writing is very much that way too. It's extremely oh, visual and it's not overblown, doesn't draw attention to itself, which is why I've paid so many compliments mm-hmm. to you, which are sincere about your gift. 
Um, and so I'm always looking for ways to make the reader feel they're, they're living what is happening in that right. by being in her mind and showing everything through her eyes, you are hearing, seeing, smelling, and feeling, touching what she is. Mm-hmm. And I want you to feel like it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. So that's why I made that the, the choice to switch to that. And, it, um, and, you know, for a while I went away from the first-person point of view too, mm-hmm. thinking – that would be make better stories because it'd be more like a movie. It is harder to write from first person all the time. It is, challenge. but you know what? My fans didn't like it. They want to be back inside her head. Interesting. So that's I went back inside her head, and that's where I was, I will stay. Yeah, and I we talk about the challenges of it being in a mystery. That one person has got to find out everything. Everything. You know, it has to pass in front of them. And and I tried it with a novel I wrote called Light Before Day, but I ended up breaking. I ended up doing a series of third person scenes from another character who was working the opposite end of the investigation. So I feel like I cheated it a little bit. But uh, you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. First person. But you're right. It is incredibly yeah. immediate, and it's also very intimate. It's that you're having the thoughts that the person is having as they are having well, them. Well, you know, part of why I had, to, why I felt like I needed to do this is that you know I woke up one day and television was flooded with these forensic shows. I, yeah. And Wonder so who? you know, in the yeah. '90s, my, in many ways, one of the main characters in each of my books was forensic science. Right. I would or forensic medicine, where I'd say, in this book, I'm going to show you what forensic fire investigation right. is yes. like. In this book, I'm going to show you trace evidence. Mm-hmm. But. You can see all this stuff on TV. So what I realized is, look, Scarpetto wears all this knowledge like an old pair of shoes. But the one thing I have nobody else does is her. Yes. And so I have focused more and more intensely on what does it feel like to be this woman and to do what she does. And and I just let's really intimately ride along with how she unravels these crimes in a very Sherlockian but yet high-tech way. Like, for example, in the early part of Dust – um, thus the title, she she turns on that little ultraviolet right. light that, that she has in her crime scene case. And this is like Times Square light show of of some sort of, of, you know, powder that's all over the body. And it's this bright red, green and blue. And she goes, she's never seen anything like it. And so she's going to get a scientific analysis of what this is. It's a type of mineral fingerprint that turns out is on other bodies in, in, in another state where the same type of crime has occurred. But what's interesting about it is not so much what the lab says, it's what she figures out it means. Because the fascinating thing about evidence is you can find out what the DNA is or the chemical composition of something, but that's not necessarily telling you the story. Right. In fact, right. it may be leading you down a totally wrong trail. Right. It's right. The, that insight, that investigative insight. And so, like yeah. I say, science. I just love that. <laughs> In, you don't have to explain forensics in your book because you invented the genre and it just proliferated throughout television. Yeah. And now you can just refer to the ultraviolet <laughs> light that we've all seen everybody use on all those shows without having to explain it because you invented it in the first place. I yeah. just think that's brilliant. Well, it, it makes it harder. It makes it easier because now I compete against what it's sort of like that you create Frankenstein and then you then he's living in your house <laughs> yeah. and he's like I really this is it's gotten very crowded here so yeah um, yeah I, it, it is a busy environment but I, I I don't think anybody does it quite like you well thank you well I, I continue to do research I've been a an ardent student of forensic science and medicine and law invest you know you know law enforcement for really since the late 1970s when I began journalism right. 
It's the and love I'm still of it. always looking into the latest and that's newest what thing. shines yeah. through. It's the love of it, I yeah. think, that you have that that is different than all of the rest of it. I, the, the TV shows don't even work as well for me. Well, I've, I, I go to a lot of – I used to work in mysteries, and now I'm in supernatural horror, and I would go to these conferences, and everybody on a panel would eventually be asked, why this genre? And they would say, because it's about the victim. It's about justice for the victim. And, and I, there was a writer friend of mine who's been a guest on the show, Jan Burke, said she was shown a skull in, in a morgue or the remains of uh, the bones of a woman that had been recently discovered. And she had her, this moment where you can articulate it through words and it makes sense, but she had the emotional recognition that this had been a person, you know, and it's about using whatever we have at our command to find justice for that individual who in that moment was forgotten and forsaken. And I think that's the power of what you do and, and what anybody who works in the genre tries to do. And I think it's worth noting do. that you've taken it You've paid it forward. You've gone back the other direction to encourage and improve the science in the real world, not just in fiction. Your your charitable contributions yes. and your your and, drive to bring that back. To yes, I, I'm. On, I spend a lot of time with the real people who who do this type of work. And and the and the point, Chris, that you brought up about justice is one of the reasons I wish that publishing and bookstores would get rid of the whole rubric of mysteries because the kinds of thrillers that people are writing today where if you walk in a morgue and you see a dead body on a steel table you don't call that a mystery no. mm-hmm. because it's not a puzzle to be solved you bring in the humanity right you're really going in as, as a physician yeah and so and i tried a long time ago to get barnes and noble for example could can you just change it to crime and actually yeah. they now kind of now they now sort of have both because yeah. it the the whole evolution of of the genre is you go back to the gothic novels like yes. Wilkie Collins and Mary Shelley, um, and then we got into the more hard boiled, uh, you know, Maltese Falcon type books, <laughs> mysteries. Agatha Christie, who's like amazing, and she's right. a hero of mine. But it, they're formulaic, and mm-hmm. there really are puzzles. Now things have gotten extremely graphic. People are. It's just like I mean, people are writing about real blood and real bodies and mm-hmm. real scientific techniques. Oh, and, th- and that's what they're showing on TV. So I think we're more into, I guess, thriller is the best word. Like the British call them thrillers, which I think is better. Right, right. Well, I it's do. a better description. Right. I, I, there is something cold and detached about the term mystery, and I think you're right. We've seen a greater passion for and care for the victim than the term mystery implies, absolutely. Well, and as a reader, I think there's a preference. Like, sometimes you just want an Agatha Christie for your plane ride like and whatever. Like the tea cozy kind of thing. And then where, sometimes, yeah. yeah, you really want to well, wait like, in there and have Patricia or Saunders or somebody yeah. take us through. Or um, James Lee Burke. Give or, us, yeah, yeah, and give us, you know, I really want the blood and guts of it. I, Kathy Reichs or one, one of you. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about this before we move on from dust, and we don't have to move on from dust, but no, we, we kind of have in a bit. You're dealing with a classification, a classification excuse me, of killer that I've never heard before, which is a spectacle killer. Mm-hmm. What right. is a spectacle killer? Well, here's the thing that happened. I'd already started dust, and almost exact, not quite this date, but very close, a year ago, I happened to be in Washington uh, having a chat with Senator Orrin Hatch, who we have nothing in common except that we like each other. and but we've, I, I mean, I've known him almost my entire career. And the, well, we do have one thing in common, and that is our huge support of law enforcement mm-hmm. and great concern about crime in this country. And we were having a talk in his office, you know, about what's what's going on out there and law, you know, various things in law enforcement and the types of crimes. Because, you know, he used to be head of uh, judiciary. And so things like the FBI were under his, his jurisdiction, so to speak. Right. When I was, when we ended our conversation, I got up. When I walked out into his sitting room, all over the flat screens on the wall, 
were the Newtown shootings mm. oh. that had happened while I was sitting with him. And I thought, this is like the craziest irony. Oh, my God. Really? Not to mention, I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is like the worst thing I'd ever heard of. Right. And so it's, as I was flying back home, I was thinking, first of all, I'm going to have an illusion. Scarpetta would go and help her colleagues in this case. She's right down the road from right. Connecticut. Not far. And and I'm not going to show the case to my readers, but I want to show what it did to her. What what happens? How does this woman live with with, with working these types of things? Whether it's you know the killing of children in a school or the medical examiners that respond when people are shot in a movie theater or a shopping mall, and and so I have Benton Wesley, her FBI profiler husband, come up with a classification, which if it if it isn't out there yet, it should be, which is a type of killer who will do anything for attention. Right. These, you yes. have these isolative individuals right. practically living in a basement, watching these violent video games, and the one in this case, and I don't even like to say his name because it bothers me so much that well, these then, people get so much attention. Yeah. Um, they study cases like Columbine, mm-hmm. where those two young men, you know, People know their names all over the world. But these days, if you commit something bad enough, you'll be acknowledged by the White House. Right. And and so let's take a quick break and come back. I think this is a really rich topic. Yeah, we'll talk some more about spectacle killers and we'll also be answering some of the mountain of questions we've received from you from our party people. We have never gotten a response like you. Overwhelming (laughs) on the Facebook page. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and we're here with Patricia Cornwell. We'll be back in a few. When I was young. It's my best friend Fitzpatrick. Yay! I wanna put wrapping paper around the sun. I never needed anyone. I want to live here. It's the center of everything. Making love was just for fun. I want to put wrapping paper around. I want to live here. It's the center of everything. Those days are gone. Oh, Fitzpatrick, please come home again. I don't really want to do this, but I will if I have to. Little boy, are you lost? I'm looking for the L.A. River. Where is it? You're looking at it, son. There's no water. How am I going to throw myself in it and pretend to want to drown and then get rescued by a hot Latin fireman? Well, you're not, because there's no water in it. Now tell me, son, why would you want to make hot Latin firemen think that you want to drown? I don't know. Why are you homeless? I'm not homeless. I'm just out here feeding these birds. So that burlap sack is like a choice? This is from Burlington Coat Factory, and it's not a sack. Why, you sure are a saucy little thing. What are you doing so far from home in a halter top and a tiara? This is a hand-shredded tank top and a bedazzled tennis visor. Get it together, homeless man. I am not homeless. Then why do you talk like Froghorn Leghorn? It's Foghorn Leghorn. Oh, I guess that makes more sense. I was always like, so he's a frog with a horn on both of his legs? It just seemed like too many things for one cartoon. I don't understand you at all. I don't understand you either. You're standing here on a bridge over a river that doesn't actually exist. And you're the first person I've ever met dressed entirely in earth tones who isn't homeless, and there are birds all around your feet. Because I'm 
feeding them, for Christ's sake. Oh, my God. You're an angel in disguise, and you were put here to keep me from jumping to my death. You weren't planning to jump to your death. You were just going to dive into some water so a hot fireman would rescue you. But God doesn't know that. He doesn't know anything. This is totally like that old movie with the screaming man who kills himself, and then his life gets better in the snow, and a bell rings and gives him lots of money. It's a wonderful life. That's not what that movie's about. You are very strange. Are you feeling all right? I'm feeling better now that I've met you, homeless angel man with bird friends. Now give me magical advice. Will my fake suicide email make Fitzpatrick see what a good friend I am and make him come back from New York City so we can be besties again? A fake suicide note? Well... If that isn't the most childish and manipulative... Oh, so you think it will make him remember my inner child and love me like a brother again? Cool! Will he buy my inner child cool shoes because he feels bad? No. I think that's a terrible thing to do to your friend. A fake suicide note? My God, child. What are they stuffing your head with over there in West Hollywood? Well, this is Thursday, so, um, Pablo, I think? Oh, good Lord. Exactly. Ask the Lord if Fitzpatrick is going to show up here and try to prevent me from jumping. Or maybe you already know he is, and that's why you're not doing anything to stop it. Dear Lord, am I having a stroke, or is this a piece of fairy dust stuck in my eye? Please, whatever he is, don't let him be real. Love, Froghorn. I thought you said it was Foghorn. It's called irony, son. That's it. I know why the birds are here. I'm feeding them. The birds are here because I'm feeding them. No, they're under your command, which means if I jump, they'll rescue me in midair. What? No, that that's crazy. What do you get down from there? These are just a bunch of dirty pigeons. You can do a swan dive even if you don't have wings, right? Get down from there this instant. Here goes nothing. Where are the Covered in drag queens, padding, and my best friend. This is weirder than if a homeless man's birds had rescued me. I'm not homeless! Don't kill yourself. The Biter Dragons will unleash the cotton army. Fitzpatrick, you're home! go to New York again. Promise me you'll stay here forever where the friends are better and the drugs are cheaper. In New York, the potato chip starship painted my eyes with glee. I know, and I'm so glad you're too high to realize what I did to get you back here. Get out of here, you strange and awful child! Thank you, homeless angel! I am not homeless! Better luck next time with your magic birds! Okay, I'm kind of over him now. Can we go, drag queens? Fitzpatrick, look, the birds are following us. They're magic after all. I can't see out of my right eye. they're pooping now. Bitch. 
You're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, where dessert is the most important meal of the day. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> Wake Sorry, up, I'm, Eric Shaw Quinn. I'm just still so struck with our guest. I know. We have so much to talk about. Patricia Cornwell didn't sell a single copy of her first novel at her first book signing, but it went on to win every prestigious award a crime novel can receive. And today she is one of the most su- successful, excuse me, and influential crime novelists in the world. Patricia, we're so thrilled to have you here on The Dinner Party well, Show. Well, this is so much fun, and, and I hope we'll do it more than once. I hope so, too. I You're hope here. So too. That, that we can make a deal on that. Indeed. Um, um, so we have a mountain of questions for you from our party people and many people who followed you to our Facebook page and want to ask you questions. But we were talking earlier about this new classification of killer that you felt was was called for by the Newton, Newtown shootings, excuse me, and other sort of mass shootings, the spectacle killer. Yes. Let's, let's talk some more about about what drives a spectacle killer. Well, I think that, I mean, you know, there's there's, there's so many components, of course, that that. that come into play to create the perfect storm of someone who's going to do this. It isn't obviously just somebody who wants attention, but I think you have the isolation, perhaps the bullying, psychiatric problems, whatever's going on at home. And, um, you know, in my opinion, if you've got a child with severe developmental problems and is sp- spends all his time in the basement and just communicates you with, with through emails, which is what this guy was doing in the Newtown case, yeah. you don't you don't give him self esteem by teaching him to shoot an assault rifle and then buy mm-hmm. him a pistol for Christmas. Right, right. I mean, That's come on, not a good call. And so, but but I do think when when the Columbine massacre happened, a medical examiner said to me at that time back in the nineties, this once this gate opens, it's going to open wider and wider and wider because some other disturbed person gets the idea. Mm-hmm. I'm a nothing. I have no job. Mm-hmm. I've been picked on. I'm going to show everybody and I will become as famous as, you know, John Lennon or like Mark David Chapman did after he murdered John Lennon. Right. Or Jack. Was Jack a spectacle killer? Jack the Ripper? Yeah. I mean, I do, writing oh, to yeah. the paper. I mean, oh, yes. I often yeah. think that the media is what made Jack the Ripper Jack the Ripper. The difference is Jack the Ripper, um, Walter Sickert, did not want to get caught, and he was not about to go take, you know, go into the public place and slaughter a bunch right. of people and then kill himself or, or be hanged by the law enforcement no, it was The taunting was almost part but, of it. Yeah, he lo- it was his greatest performance. He started out as an actor. You know, and, and with a stage that. name, Mr. Ne- Nemo, which may- means Mr. Nobody. And, in fact, a number of Ripper letters are signed Nemo. And in a telegram that he sent, that because he also did that as, as communications, not just handwriting letters, it, it's, it's, it says um, from Mr. Nobody crossed out Jack the Ripper. I mean, there's so many um, unbelievable parallels between Sickert's life and what's in those letters, in addition to all the, the mountain of evidence against him. But, yes, he created a tremendous spectacle. He created the most unforgettable character um, in terms of in criminal history. Right. Jack the Ripper is one of the few criminals who you could go to any country on this planet and somebody, they know who he is. Right. So we have a listener, Gary Swafford, a loyal listener of the show, says, what can you share about your upcoming update on Jack the Ripper? And I think it's worth noting that there has been, that you have done a great deal of research for those of you, I don't know, who've been on Mars or something and didn't <laughs> know about it and already published a book establishing this this particular sicker, this artist as... Yes, which has been highly controversial and I've been enormously picked on about it. 
and a lot of people don't want to believe it. But I, after doing another 10 years of research, because the first version came out in 2002, and my revision, which I'm just finishing, will probably be out in early 2015, um, I am more certain than ever that this artist, Walter Sickert, was Jack the Ripper. But I can't, you know, I'll give you two things that are more galvanized since the first version. Uh-huh. One is that um, one of the biggest uh, refutations of my investigative theory about who Jack the Ripper was has been that Walter Sickert was in France when the Ripper crimes occurred, which was the summer the when they began, because I know there were many more than five or six. That this That's a silliness in the theory, too. But when they began in the, fall, the summer fall of 1888, the theory, but what's even on – if you look at um, the, the Tate Britain, mm-hmm. you know, their website mm-hmm. where they have a lot of secret works in their museum, if you read his bio, it's it even sort of pretty much implies that, that I have been over – you know, my theory has been mm. basically debunked. Mm-hmm. Just, and, the, and the alibi is – this whole bit about being in France. Yes, Sickert was in France some, but what their people have refused to look at is that there are music hall sketches where he would go sit in the music halls, which can't, you know, let out about one o'clock in the morning. They were like vaudeville variety shows, very bawdy, mm-hmm. um, decadent, a lot of alcohol, prostitutes there, very uh-huh. sexualized children on stage, you name it, they did it. Yeah. He would sit there and he'd do sketches. This was one of his favorite things to do. His own music hall sketches, a number of them, are dated, you know, like August, September, October, 1888, that place him in London. So he clearly was not in France the entire time when the Ripper crime started in August and continued all the and way through the end of the year. And it's a boat ride. Oh, it's an e- it was an easy steamer ride um, <laughs> Even across so, the English like, Channel. That's like saying, oh, well, I was in Orange County. I couldn't possibly have done something in Los right, Angeles. Right, absolutely. But my question is, why do you think it's important for the Tate to give the illusion that you've been debunked? What is, what's their skin in the game? I don't game? know. Is the it, art world over yeah. there has just been rabid about this. The more... And, you know, they, the longer this has been out there, the more they tend to gild the lily to try to show... I I'm find that he's a hugely important artist over there. Some of his art is really beautiful. Some of it is incredibly ugly. Mm-hmm. Some of his models, these pe- these women he painted, look dead, and maybe there's a good reason for that. Mm-hmm. Some of it is extremely violent. But I've never said he wasn't a good artist. Right. Caravaggio is one of my favorite artists of all time, but he was a criminal and a murderer. Right. and uh, But also, you're not just going by his art, too. You've got a lot of DNA evidence. You've got the sort of might of the the forensics that you brought to the case on your a side as well. A lot of forensics to the yeah. case. The DNA is, is not as great as you'd like because the paper was so contaminated that these old letters were, that, you know, were written on. Sure. Right. Because you're... And they've been handled a lot. And we... It, the DNA evidence that we got is inclusionary, that Sickert and Ripper are the same. They don't prove it, but it's just another layer of a... Of, of really um, what you would call a circumstantial evidence. But the most Im- compelling scientific evidence is the actual paper comparisons. Using the world's foremost forensic paper analyst, a guy named Peter Bauer, uh, and having him look at the letters and look at, at Sickert letters and make comparisons. And, for example, in one case there are three um, – Sickert letters and two Ripper letters, and the watermarks in the paper could come from could have come from a a paper batch run that included only twenty four sheets of paper milled. Wow. 
Wow. In this hand-milled paper, uh, this gurney ivory laid. Chilling. Um, wow. Watermark paper. Uh, we have a listener, Charity Raven, would like to know what you think about the royal family connection, if there is one. Did they play any part in covering up or at the very least sweeping details under the carpet of the Ripper crimes? Well, and she would also like to thank you for being amazing. Oh, well, that's very <laughs> kind. Um, well, this is another thing that I'm going to flesh out in the revision of my book. This is the second little tease that I'll give is in doing further investigation, what has turned out is that the reason the royal conspiracy is valid is not because it's true. It's because it was confabulated by Sickert himself. I have found evidence that Sickert began wow. telling this story to people as, as late as the 1920s where he that, that he somehow was on the inside and knew that the Duke of Clarence had, had a baby with uh, one, one of the prostitutes and, the and you know, Sir William Gull, the, the Queen Victoria's surgeon – um, sort of got Sickert to help, and they were going to have to to kill these prostitutes to because they were trying to blackmail the royal family. That's the, basically the crux of this royal conspiracy. And supposedly Sir William Gull, who, by the way, by this point had suffered a stroke and was in his 70s, and I promise you did not have the wherewithal to go roaring around Whitechapel in a carriage <laughs> slaughtering women. And secondly, if you look at the types of crimes, these are violent sexual crimes. They are not hits. Right. Um, but the, for example— this is in my in my new version, which won't be out for quite a while. Sir William Gull, as it turns out, was one of the Sickert's family's physicians. Mm. So Sickert knew him or mm -hmm. knew of him. And so he was pulling, you know, this is a confabulation that started with him and, and ended up in the Stephen Knight book in the 1970s called The Final Solution, Jack the Ripper, uh, mm -hmm. which, taught, which introduced the royal conspiracy. But this is like his greatest ha-ha of all time, that he got this to have people today still believing that's what really happened. And do, do you feel like you got different treatment than that book did and for reasons that are maybe spurious? Um, well, that that book didn't offend the art world. Mm -hmm. You know, my book, I have deeply offended the apologists and also Sickert's non-biological offspring. Right. You know, he the, the kids from or nephews from his third wife or whoever else is out there. But it's – I don't know why – England, it's, it's almost as if I attacked all of the UK with this. And I don't know why it, people have such a difficult time having an open mind reading, you know, reading the evidence, looking at the way this guy lived and how there's so much about his life that's completely fitting with him committing these types of crimes, his disappearances, his renting hovels, his his obsession with people in the East End where these crimes occurred, the fact that he did a painting that he himself titled Jack the Ripper's Bedroom, which showed the bedroom he was, Sickert was living in at the time that he painted it. I mean, he was constantly talking about this, but it's layer after layer after layer. And then you ask, you get to the, the big point of what could have been the real trigger that pulled it in the sky? Um, mm -hmm. And that would have been the medical violence perpetrated upon him as a right. child. Right. That's right. the thing that I find the most compelling about what you've written is you're talking about his motivation behind his own sexual mutilation being a part of his desire to sexually mutilate others. Well, imagine in the 1860s being under the age of five and having three surgeries um, – Shall we say in the Southern Hemisphere? I don't know. I don't want to say, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say we any can... bad words on your show. But <laughs> you, can, you can actually say whatever well, you want. <laughs> it, it was, he, to repair a fistula, which is, uh, it's like it's like a wormhole, so to speak. It's like right. fistula means reed in in Latin, uh -huh. and so it parts of the body 
get connected in a way that they shouldn't or yes. or they you know so he was he was born with a fistula of either his rectum or his penis or both wow. and back in those days they didn't do surgeries if something was trifling because chances are you're going to die in surgery right. from right. a from a you know infection or whatever he had 3 of these um wow. and that and he would have been hog tied you know with his legs spread the last thing he would see you know uh, is I don't even. We don't even know if he had anesthesia oh, because this was really God. before that was being used. Oh my God! You know they would heat the instruments with oh, a oh, yeah. a wood stove in there to cauterize, and the yeah. the, the operating yeah. table was an iron bedstead. And in a lot of Sickert always kept an iron bedstead in his studios to pose his wow women on that he wow. painted. It's yeah. just, but this guy, whatever he did, which is I don't forgive, but nobody should have endured what he did as a child. Right. And so we also don't know how limited he was and how mutilated he was. Right. In terms of whether he was even able to have sex, we don't know. Yeah. We could do a whole show on, on you and Jack the Ripper. And we will. Your, your theories about Jack the Ripper. And we will if you ever come back. But we have so many other back. wonderful questions. And I know you're probably sick of talking about it. I know my mother goes through this with the Vampire Chronicles. But we have a lot of people who know, want to know when Case Carpetta is going to be on the big screen. But we have one person in particular who would like to know if you would play her. Oh, <laughs> That's well, Lynn I, Scott I would, Mayer. If I played Scarpetta, I'd have maybe ten people show up. And, I, and, the, and, and nine of them would leave when there was the shower scene. <laughs> I don't know. Lynn Scott Mayer says no one could or would compare to you acting out the character you created. And she goes on to name actresses that she thinks shouldn't play the role because she thinks you should play the role. Well, that is very kind. But like I said, it'd be one of the big, biggest box office busts in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah. um, well, where are you with the whole movie? Well, thing? it's it's still in the script development stage at Fox 2000, where it's been for four years. And well, Scarpetta has been optioned for all 23 years that she has been wow. um, in existence in the literary world. So, but it's just still in script development. I, I yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Do you want to be involved in script development? It's such a hellish process for a novelist to see the other people get involved and start to pick it apart. Is it something you want to have a role in or have you sort of stepped well, back and said? We're, well, there's been a number of scripts written and right. they just, you know, so we're, I don't know what stage they're in now, whether they're going to try to do a rewrite of the latest or they're going to hire somebody else I don't know but it's it's uh it's it's been you know it's been a tough process mm -hmm. um, I don't really know what's going to happen Do you do you foresee a future for her on television? Oh, I think I think television is doing amazing stuff these right. days. Yeah. I mean some of the cable shows will just knock I mean really Stunning. I started watching Breaking Bad and I could and I became a glutton for it. Right. I mean Dexter Right. I mean, some of these shows are just beautiful. Well, they're driven by writers. Done. I think part of what television has going for it is that it is a medium driven by the writer. If you mm -hmm. don't have a good writer, you cannot have a good show. Right. It's not Absolutely. possible. And and novelists can conceive of things like a whole season of a TV show, whereas a lot of – we complain a lot about shows that are clearly – they sound good as a 15-second pitch in the room. But then you get into the – they don't have legs and the characters don't grow and you develop. You can't spin the story out. But that happens a lot on network. But on cable where they're giving writers really free reign, you're getting shows like Breaking Bad and you're getting shows like Game of Thrones, which I think which has changed the field oh, yeah. for how we yeah. adapt books. It's almost like it's the the, the most sophisticated outgrowth of the, the network miniseries they don't do anymore like Shogun and Noble House. <laughs> Those big creaky miniseries now have their mature form on HBO. So, I mean, it's it, it, maybe five years ago we would 
would laugh at the idea of Scarpetta on TV because we would think, oh, they'll dumb it down or they'll eliminate, you know, Lucy's sexuality or Lucy altogether. But now, you know, if it's... Oh, no, they, they could do a great job. And I, yeah. and I haven't given up hope that Fox 2000 is not going to do a great job. The person who is in charge of it over there is... She's been just a passionate advocate. It's just a frustrating process. It really is. It yeah. sometimes surprises me that any movies ever get made at all. It is so complicated and so convoluted yeah. sometimes. So and we'll then see. when it happens, bam, it happens like that. Well, yeah, well, I've, I've worked with some really nice people over there, and we'll, we'll hope that it, it happens. Um, but meanwhile, you know, I've been trying, I've been sneaking my way into television a little bit anyway because I've. Um, just sold a, a pilot to ABC for a brand new character named oh, Greta Stone. Cool. And Wonderful. so we're in process of developing that and hoping it will spin off oh, into a dramatic series. Very exciting. Excellent. So I'm, it's time to, I'm, I'm ready to have some fun in this town. Yeah. Well, you sure are out here a lot. Well, I see on why. Twitter. Got yeah. A lot of little secret Good. projects going on. Excellent. Excellent. And that will we'll rope you in here every time you're in town. That's a deal. Love uh, to. Sherry Robinson has questions about another city, which is Washington, D.C. She wants to know if you have any aspirations to seek elective office. We really could use an attractive, intelligent, thoughtful, and thought provoking woman of your stature to address issues that your characters confront violence, syst- systematic social failures, and LGBT equality to name a few. So Well, the thing is, I have such a non-controversial, squeaky clean background. I'm such a great candidate for this. Man, I can just see... I would like to see me in a debate just for one minute trying to defend the laundry list out there. I know, right? So, no, I would... I That's not for me. I'm, I'm always happy to... Uh, consult with, give advice, discuss the important things with some of those lovely people on Capitol Hill when they ask. Right. Um, uh, but no, I, there's that that would not... Uh-uh. Yeah, no, I get I, it. I couldn't deal with it. I get it. I just I, I'll it. try to help in other ways. The you know? city council elections here in West Hollywood are now bloodbaths. I just will I mean, never get involved. I just yeah, you know it'd mistakes? be like living in a hell of bad book reviews. I constantly <laughs> daily. You. You're awful. Daily you book did reviews. In, when you were two years old, shame on right. you. And a review that you have to answer to every day when a microphone is put in. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think this reviewer probably didn't have breakfast, and that's why they didn't really like my book. <laughs> Um, we have a lot of questions about your process. I like this one. Faith Iglesias would like to know what piece of advice about writing do you wish you had not been given at the beginning? Turned mm. out, I guess, not to be true or valuable or helpful. Let's see. What piece of advice? I think um, I think that I, I was told back in those days, this was like 1989. Sometimes I start saying 1889 because I so... <laughs> I'm sorry, this Ripper thing's really screwed up my head. Right. And I start thinking I live in the Victorian era. But anyway, and, and you know, I was told that you had to sort of stick with the conventions of the genre a little bit, mm. which in one of the things is that you you keep things very linear and you don't get much into the personal life of the protagonist. So actually the agent I had at that time cut 60 pages out of postmortem. Wow. And I'm not saying he did a bad job, but some of it was showing a little bit more the human side of her. Um, and I, which, and which right now is part of what's so strong about what I do is this, is the whole character, her, her humanity sure, absolutely. and her good moments and her bad moments. And so I, I probably would have, I wished I'd listened a little less to that, but it was what people knew. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to people writing is go with your own instinct. And the, and that's the other side of this is for the most part, I really didn't listen because <laughs> that's you. how this whole new genre got invented is the right. other, the other, the other convention of the quote mystery genre is the killer had to be someone you knew. 
Mm-hmm. It had to be someone we'd met before, like the old butler did it routine. Right. And so one reviewer in England, when Postmortem came out, and he read it, and he got to the end, and he realized he was dealing with a stranger like most serial killers are. Right. He was so angry at my breaking this rule, he flung the book across the room. Really? Yeah, this is what he wrote in his review. But it is really so – like, I, I didn't can certainly understand one. the expectation. Right. All of the Agatha Christie's, it's somebody from the family in the so big revelation. What do they call it? The is... closed circle of suspects? Right. Yeah. But then you have to draw them all into the room and have that long conversation. That big announcement. And here's where... why I know <laughs> where you Ms. did it. It's Her like, cool. how did Miss Marple know all of this? How did she see how? Well, Miss Marple wasn't after comic. Jeffrey Dahmer either. I'll tell you, she was not. Absolutely. But she would have gotten him. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> nobody baffles Miss Marple. That's where we go. We get a time machine and we send Miss Marple after Jeffrey Dahmer. I can't find this question, but I don't actually. I think I had a better variation on this question, which was if you could collaborate on a book with any writer in history, who would you pick? Oh, that is a good. Oh, writer. besides you, you mean? Oh, <laughs> I'm bright red. Um, we'll put it on YouTube. I don't know that it'd be so weird to collaborate on a book. I think it's weird too. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I could. Yeah, but I would tell you that. If I could have met somebody who's not here anymore, I would have loved to have met Agatha Christie. Really? I just think I, I would have been fascinated to sit down and have a cup of tea. To know or what maybe. made her tick, right? And I think she was probably, you know, she was very shy. And it, I, I heard, I've heard some of the stories. When I won a, in a book award over there, her, um, her, her daughter was one of the, the judges of that award, which blew me away. And her grandson is the one who presented it. And I listened to him tell stories about Agatha Christie before he presented these awards and that she would do things like when she had to go out and sign books, as she was coming down the stairs, she would say, I'm getting, you know, she basically would get into the Agatha Christie character <laughs> because she was so shy and so mortified that mm. she had to go out and do these things. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I would love to know – I would love to have known her process. Like mm-hmm. what kind of research did she do? Because I believe if she were alive today writing, she'd do a lot of research and a lot of the modern things being used. Mm-hmm. But, but what, a, what a mind. Right. What a mathematical, puzzle-solving, Rubik cube creating mind. Absolutely. What, a, what an, a remarkable person. And I think to... she would have been a nice person. You know, right. Yes, it she, seems. Yeah, it I seems. Think, I think she would. I think she was. You also tweet a lot about Ernest Hemingway. Is he yes. an influence on you? His writing is yes. remarkable. What you can learn from his writing, and basically what Hemingway would would say is just tell it. Don't don't. In other words, don't do a lot of ornamentation. He uses very little in the way of adjectives and adverbs. Yeah, he mm-hmm. has this photographic way of showing you something, which is remarkable because that is really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, you can see. What he is talking about. And so in terms of the leanness and the, the vividness in the physicality of the way he writes, and he's a master of dialogue, I, I love to I – lo- and, and also he reflects on what it's like to be a writer. If you read A Movable Feast or if you read The Garden of Eden, which the main character is a, a writer who's just published his first book – and how he hates the bad book reviews and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can you can see him patting off in his bare feet, you know, in France or whatever to the room at the end of the hotel where he writes by himself. And I love to read about the process because, as we mentioned earlier about having a salon, mm-hmm. if you are a writer, it is so rare that you can talk about that with somebody, about the difficulty of having to be alone. You right. know, when I really have to go do it. So solitary. It's, yeah, it's like I go, 
I have to pass through this looking glass and go into another world, and I don't want to go. And then when I get there, I don't want to leave. Right. That's <laughs> isn't that the rub? Right. That? Absolutely. The great conundrum. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, indeed. Well, we could keep you here all day and all night talking about this stuff. This and you're welcome a, to stay if a, you want to, but a, we but have we're, to go. We're tonight. out of time. We got to wrap up our show. But I, it's been an honor and a privilege well, to have you, you on the dinner me. party show. Thank you for having me. This has show. been great fun. Thank you so much. And we certainly hope you'll come back. I will. And now, in keeping with the Dinner Party Show's commitment to community enrichment, it's time for another in our ongoing series of public service announcements featuring the people who make the Dinner Party Show what it is. Best served warm. Hi, y'all. I'm Tanya Lee Musgrave, and for the past year, y'all have known me as the travel consultant for the Dinner Party Show, and it's given y'all quite a laugh here and there since I prefer to be at home with my dogs. Now, did you also know that I spend a fair amount of time researching the size and scope of our federal government? Yes, sir, I do, and let me tell you something. My research has led me to some startling conclusions. First of all, when it's not brokering peace agreements between other countries, trying to prevent another global financial collapse and covering up evidence of contact with extraterrestrials, our federal government has one priority and one priority only to find out just what the hell you're doing right now, alone, in your house, or when you're on the phone, or when you're watching your shows, or when you're driving or smoking out back or yelling at your neighbor over the back fence about his dog. That's right. Your federal government cares about you too damn much. So if you're looking for an expectation of privacy, well, it's best not to do much of anything at all. Just sit there alone in your house, real quiet like with the dogs. And if you've got something important to say to your partner or husband or widowed friend, just use hand signals or something. I don't know. Draw a picture. Because remember, when the federal government isn't busy with other things, you are the only thing on its mind. I'm Tanya Lee Musgrave, and this is Best Served Warm. Well, we've gone over a little bit. <laughs> there are those chimes. Yeah, of course we went over. You can't cut off Patricia Cornwell. Yes. She's the queen. Wow, and what a great guest. What a wonderful, generous, lovely, and charming guest. I look forward to her next visit, which I hope will be soon. She Should called she this show a salon month? for artists, so I, I she, she has to come back and be and part my, of the and salon. And my hair looks great. And our sponsor, Videl Sassoon, loves and supports <laughs> all artists. Yes, we hope she comes back very soon. That way I can cross that off my bucket list. Patricia's new book uh, is available through the... Dinner Party Show website. Absolutely. www.thedinnerpartyshow.com, as is Joe Winkie's. Absolutely. I don't know how new his book is, but it's also available. It's there. there. Papal Bull is there for sale alongside Dust Absolutely. by Patricia now, Cornwell. Now we've got. What is Jordan going to do next? I'm not week telling you about it because I, I don't. I, you guys have a complicated history, and I don't want you to frighten him out of innovation and new ideas. So Jordan <sighs> is doing our Christmas special. Well, as long as it's it. heavily insured. Well, I know that I had to take out some sort of permits for the Grove here in Los Angeles. The oh popular my God, shopping I mall. like the Grove. If he yes, burns it they down, they film extra there. He's not going to burn it down. Actually, not... extra has moved to um, Universal City Walk. That's probably why they gave us a permit then to shoot Jordan's show. Yeah, at the or maybe why they moved. Okay. All right. Well, we'll find out next week. It'll be a lovely surprise. And then um, tomorrow morning, the polls close for the fork, the first annual Forkies. So get in there and be sure that you vote. The uh, the the 
Vote Now button. The app. The app, app is at the top of our Facebook page in the row of squares just below the cover photo. If those directions aren't confusing the enough. The row of squares. Look for the row of squares. Look for the row of squares. All right, Eric. Uh, and it's my new YA novel, The Row of Squares. The Row of Squares. A young girl gets caught between a circle and a square. <laughs> and a werewolf saves Well, her. it's been a really extra special writer's salon of the show. I'll say. And uh, we went over a little bit, but... You got Patricia Cornwell, so you can't really complain. I know, right? And it's our show. It's not like there's another. It's not like Rachel Maddow is coming on after right? us. Right? <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> and Chris Hayes runs over on her all the time. Absolutely. All right, then. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a great year. Um, it's been really fun. We've got two great more shows left uh, this year. Two very special shows. So stay tuned for those, and have a great holiday, and you know all that shit. Absolutely. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to The Dinner Party Show. Here's Pink.